2: All right, hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. This season, I'm focusing on how farms and food businesses are having to pivot and adjust to feed their communities during COVID-19. Today's guest brings a compelling story of adaptation from Connecticut. My guest is Mike Geller, the owner of Mike's Organic, a market and delivery service that connects local farms and eaters. Mike, thanks for joining me.
3: Thank you for having me, Lisa.
2: So before we get into this crazy moment we're living in, um, which I'm sure (laughs) I think you have a lot to talk about um, in that regard. Let's just take a step back um, and hear a little bit about um, your business. So when did you open Mike's Organic and what was the inspiration behind it?
3: So I started Mike's Organic in 2009. And prior to Mike's Organic, I did a lot of different things professionally, uh, kind of across the board. I ran a hip hop studio in Atlanta. I did big celebrity events, I did high end events, I did copywriting, a bunch of different things. Never really loved what I was doing. Never felt like I was making any sort of a positive contribution. So I quit and I spent three months living in the Kalahari Desert in Botswana in Africa. And oh wow. Had the Yeah, it was it was an amazing experience and um, How did you choose kind of, that? Like Yeah. What brought you there? So, <laughs> so um yeah, why there, right? So right. I'd actually I'd actually been to Africa before and really fell in love with it. And after, you know, about seven years in the corporate world, I just needed a break and I wanted to do something different. I wanted to reconnect with a lot of the things in my life that I felt like I had lost sitting under fluorescent lights, you know, ten hours a day, uh, cooking, eating better, the outdoors, a number of different things. So Africa was just a place I was drawn to and it truly changed the course and direction of, of my life. You know, I, I was sitting, um, I was standing in a grocery store in Mound, Botswana, which has about 150,000 people and all the produce, mm-hmm. all everything, you know, the eggs weren't refrigerated, the produce looked different. And this was in 2008 before the local food movement had, you know, really kind of taken off in this country. You couldn't buy organic mm-hmm. produce in stop and shop at that time. And I remember just standing there and thinking, why does all this food look so much better? And then right. I went out into the bush. I had this incredible experience. I almost got um, bitten by a cobra. I was in a plane that lost an engine. I got charged by a leopard <sighs> all on the same trip. Um, and, uh, you know, left Sounds left like you should write a
2: book about that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I actually found some pages from my journal the other day that I um, was looking through. It's amazing to think about it now. It was 12 years ago. But, um, you know, I left Africa in the best shape of my life and with so many you know, w- way more questions than answers about our food specifically. So I came home oh. and I um, I worked at Stone Barns where, where Blue Hill Restaurant is. And I um, uh-huh. and volunteered for, you know, Jack Algier, who, the head farmer, and he's still there. And just started learning about our food system in the Northeast, sustainable agriculture, and, you know, why our food had changed so much and how it had changed. And I then started Mike's Organic in 2009 out of my parents' house with my Nissan Pathfinder doing you know, eight deliveries a week and working with four or five farms in the beginning. And I was one of the first people in America to start that type of a business, a farm to home delivery business. And and obviously have learned a lot since then and the business grew and we're at where we're at today.
2: Right. Um, just, uh, I want to Quickly plug my own show and just say that Jack Algier was a former guest on the Farm Report. So if anyone's interested in hearing from him, um, (laughs) I don't remember the episode number, but it's a really great episode where we tour the greenhouses at Stone Barns. Um, But so I'm curious. So you had this experience in Africa, and and you know you you saw food that felt to you fresh and good, and then you came back. Um, What was When you started to dig into this and you started your business, like what was the problem that you realized needed to be solved? Like why was the food that you were seeing not at the quality you thought it should be?
3: Sure. So it's a two-part answer, but first and foremost was that there was no true connection between the small local farmers and the consumer. So right. even though all these farmers were growing incredible products and we do everything at Mike's, we do pasture meat, we do you know, grass fed dairy, we do produce, we do pantry, all, all types of things. But at the time, there was no true conduit between the small local farmers and the consumer. You know, the grocery stores weren't carrying those types of products at that time. Some of the most of the farmers didn't have the scale to keep up with them. Restaurants were just starting to kind of feature you know Tom Colicchio was doing that you know years back but that was even in its infancy as well so there wasn't a true uh-huh. connection and the other thing was that you know the food system that we've created in this country doesn't prioritize any of the things that the small local farmers do it doesn't prioritize flavor nutrition the environment the you know the welfare of the workers at the local economy none of those things are truly a part of our industrial food system that we've created so it was a combination of those two two factors. As t- there there was there was and still is a true problem that needed solving, and in, in in some small way we were hoping to alleviate some of that problem for the farmers and the consumers.
2: Right. So so you started this market where you're kind of bridging that connection between farmers and, and local consumers. Um, are you selling, is everything you sell from local producers? Um, or if not, like what's the criteria? How do you choose what to sell?
3: So when I began the business, every, I, through the years, I've spoken to a lot of you know people that are starting food businesses, small business owners. And I think in the beginning, everyone is mission driven and you should be. We still are to this day, very mission driven. When I began the business, though, my, my mission was, I'm only going to work with farmers within 50 to 75 miles of where we are. And uh-huh. we, we did that. And we did that for probably five years. And we still do that. However, what two things started to happen. One, the access to those types of products increased over time. So the heirloom tomato that I could get you from Hepworth Farm, let's say, um, which is one of my first farmers, and Gail and Amy Hepworth are, are dear friends. You could now buy, let's say, elsewhere besides Mike's Organic. And two, Okay. I think that the other the other thing that happened was that people started to – the whole thing just started to shift and, and change. So we didn't really have an idea of you – know, our, our food was coming from a lot of different places. We also understood that our consumers wanted products that weren't just grown locally, and we made it our mission. To seek out the best, the brightest producers we could find across the country. So we now carry, you know, an incredible olive oil from California, Bariani, or we have amazing granola that's still local from a, a company called Healing Ridge and uh, Healing Home in Pound Ridge. So we wanted to seek out the best, and we thought that consumers, we, we, we believe that consumers deserve to have that. So we have a lot of local products. I would still say probably 60 to 80% of our products are local or hyper local within 100 miles mm. but we also work with a native american tribe in alaska that we get incredible wild caught salmon and halibut and cod from so we expanded our reach because we felt that that's what was important for the consumers and for the producers right and you you
2: for each product you sell do you do you establish that direct connection like you know exactly who it's coming from and how it was grown yes
3: yeah, so that that has yeah. been our um modus operandi from day one, you know, I got married about five years ago and we had, I had 25 farmers in tuxedos and cocktail gowns at my (laughs) wedding. Um, it was, it was, my wife was kind of like, what's, what's going on here? Um, so, so yeah, no, the two words we use every day at Mike's Organic are connection and transparency. So it's Mm. very important to know where your food's coming from. And I would tell you that of the probably five or 600 products we carry the overwhelming majority are coming directly from the people that grow, raise, make, or or catch the food. Okay, and
2: so before before the pandemic, when like your normal business operations, um, you were you were an actual brick and mortar market, right? Were you also doing online sales?
3: So actually, the the genesis of the business was just home deliveries. So, oh, okay, yeah. Mike's Organic Delivery is is what we it was called in the beginning. It was just home delivery, so that was legitimately the entire business. The market kind of came about because we were watching what was going on and seeing that people not only wanted to have their groceries delivered, but they wanted this incredible experience when they went into the shop. You know, they wanted to know where the food was coming from, et cetera. So we started the market about a year and a half ago, and that was kind of a result of the. Of the demand that we were seeing from our customers. The business in the beginning, Lisa, was really mostly a CSA. I mean, people signed up for a share. Uh. That was 95% of the business for a number of years. And that was kind of how people got their food from us. That's what worked best for the farmers. That's what worked best for us. But, um, you know, so the market has become a big piece of the business, even during this time, even in limiting it to just two shoppers at a time in our entire market, which is about, you know, 1,500 square feet. Um, Mm. We've still seen a a big uptick in the market as well. But the home deliveries obviously have have gone through the roof, um, as you would expect.
2: Right. Well, um, we have to take a quick break. So let's do that now. And when we come back, we'll talk about um, that increase in demand and and what you've been seeing since um, the pandemic started. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square Online Store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com go slash
2: Okay, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. I'm talking to Mike Geller from Mike's Organic in Connecticut. Um, Before the break, we were talking about kind of normal life, mostly. (laughs) That's what we'll call it, pre-COVID. And, you know, obviously since um, coronavirus has really disrupted the food system, food system in in major ways um so since then Mike um I mean I guess it's it's you're in an interesting position because you were set up as a delivery business and uh, so many food businesses were sort of scrambling to um create delivery businesses since everybody's at home now um so tell me a little bit about like I mean, were you at a little bit of an advantage actually when this all started since you were already set up to do home delivery?
3: So we were and are in a very unique position because of the fact of what you were just alluding to, which is that we've actually seen this kind of re-evolution of the business to where the business was trending more towards the market and we did cooking classes and events and et cetera. And then when this happened, we really reverted to our roots, which had been established over over a decade. And but we we did have to pivot in a way, not the way that most other people are, which is kind of delivering groceries for the first time. We had to totally re engineer the business to be able to accommodate Not only the demand, the number of orders, et cetera, but people's shopping patterns have changed so much. You know, everyone's at home. I mean, I have a client today that was just ordering and she has eight people in her home, all of her grown children. Right. And they're going to be there throughout the summer. And. They're not going out to dinner. They're not eating out as much or taking out as much. So people are feeding their entire family. They're cooking more than ever. They're buying groceries more. So it's been we we entirely re-engineered our warehouse. I mean, we did things and, and it was really challenging, Lisa, because in the midst of getting all of these orders and keeping up with deliveries, you know, every week something big was changing. We were buying shelves and setting up a new room. I I took on a new space right as this was starting just to try and accommodate the extra business, not knowing where it would go. It's proved to be a lifesaver for us. I mean, we have all these shelves and there are tons of inventory for the website. So there's that component. And there's also the component of trying to take all this business on and feed all these people and support all these farmers and also keep myself and my staff safe and you know, we're yeah. all socially distancing ourselves here. We're all wearing masks. We're, I've had some reticence in bringing on new employees because the people that I have with me, many of them have been with me for more than five years. I know them. I trust them. I know where they're going after they leave work. So it, it's been this, I, I've said this before, but at some point, someone will do a case study, not on us, let's say specifically, but on businesses that had to try and keep up with demand during this time and do it with such enormous constraints, many of them self-imposed. On how to keep yeah. their employees safe, customers safe. It's it's been, it's been a very it's been a wild time for sure, um, for a lot of different reasons. Do you know, um,
2: like numerically, how much your demand increased? Like how much sales increased over
3: the past few months? You know the in terms of a percentage of the number of orders we've gotten. Um, you know, I would say it's it's been about five times what we were doing um, wow. before this happened. It's been. And it, it it's, it's, it's just been a, a big learning curve for us. It's also been a, a learning curve for the farmers. And, you know, I get asked a lot of questions about supply chain and, you know, will your farmers have meat given what's going on in the country? And I've been on TV a little bit and talked about that. And I think that, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen to the supply chain overall. I think that for so, in some small way or to some degree, Small local farmers are a bit more insulated from that than the large industrial farms, given the way that things are handled. Um, One of the things we've kind of been saying since this started is that we want to shorten the chain. So you have this supply chain, which for the average consumer in America is very long. We're so distanced from our food, literally and figuratively. And we have always been about getting one step closer to the farmer. And that has become more important than ever. On a number of different levels today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, right. And people are more, suddenly, people are more aware of where their food comes from, or at least having to think about it for the first time for a lot of people, right? Having to think like, oh, I might go to a grocery store and there might not be this one food that I eat. And why is that, right? Um, So it's it's, people are asking questions, I think, that they weren't before. which which makes it a really interesting time. Um, I'm I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious about two things. Let's start with um, you mentioned changes to to the way people are eating. Um, certainly, where they're eating, right? Not out at restaurants and and at home. Um, I know you do CSA. Um, purchases and then also a la carte, you know, there's been a lot of coverage lately of an increased interest in CSAs. Are you seeing that? Are more people doing the long-term commitment to um, an at-home CSA?
3: So, yes. And interestingly enough, you know, that, that piece of our business was really the, the only part that had been regressing over the last two or three years. You know, the, the, the CSA model has been around for a while now, and I think partial you know, partially due to the fact that access has increased so much, people were kind of trending away from doing a CSA. They wanted to shop model cart, they wanted what they wanted when they wanted it, type of thing. This year we've seen our CSA signups are up about three hundred percent over what they were last year. And I think that's I think that's due to two factors. One, I think that people are recognizing more that they need to support small local farms, and that without our small local farmers, we a lot of us won't have food. You um, know when things like this happen. And two, I think that it's due to the fact that, you know, people are eating better and people want to put good things in their bodies, and this has been an opportunity for them to do that. The third, actually, I'll add is that it's a guaranteed supply of food. So. Our, right. our customers are signing up for a package that lasts from June 8th to December 23rd. So they're literally getting six months of food and they're signing up for fruits and vegetables, but also pastured meat or wild caught fish or grass fed milk or what have you. So I think that having that security, so many of our customers during this time have told us how scared and isolated and alone they have felt during the quarantine and the incredible sense of security we have given them that they're going to have food on the table for them and their, they, and their family. So right. it's been, it's been, um, I think those are some of the main factors why CSAs are going to be more well, you know, um, supported this coming season.
2: Yeah. That, that, that's, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Even just like from an like emotional level and anxiety, exo- you know, kind of a way to, um, ease some of the anxiety that everyone is feeling right now, just knowing that you've got that food supply. It's going to show up every week. You don't have to do anything. It's just going to be there. The farmer's going to keep working. And um, there is something kind of comforting about that, I think. Um, right. um, yeah. What about the farms you work with? So what are you hearing from them? Um, are they? Are most of the farms that you work with seeing a lot of increased demand? Obviously, through you they are, but overall,
3: So it's definitely a two-sided coin. And what you have are some farmers that were heavily reliant upon restaurants, really struggling. And I have a number of farmers that we work with. I would tell you, Lisa, that probably 15 to 20 of the farmers we work with over the last 10 or weeks or however many it's been have told us that without us, they, they may have gone out of business Right. because they were heavily reliant upon restaurants. Some of the farmers have not been, and for them, you know, some of the the ones that are able to do a farm stand, you know, at their farm, sell direct to consumers or weren't, you know, working with a lot of restaurants, I think that they're seeing, like, I have a farm I work with up in Vermont called Vermont Wagyu, um, Sheila Patinkin, incredible product. We've carried it for a number of years. Sheila, I can't, at, at this point, I can't buy beef from her because she's selling everything she can, not she can, everything she produces, she's selling directly on her website. Right. And that's and that's new that, you know, that's never been something that we have had happen. And I, and I spoke to her yesterday. We had a lovely conversation. She's amazing, amazing farmer, amazing woman. And she said, Mike, I'm sorry, I just don't have, you know, steaks right now. And I said, Lisa, I'm mean, Lisa, I'm sorry. I said, Sheila, if, <laughs> if you can get more for those steaks on your website, the welfare of your farm is much more important than me having 20 ribeye steaks for me right now. So you do what you need to do for your farm. And so I think it's across the map, but I would tell you that probably more farmers than not have been adversely affected by what's going on, not positively affected.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask you about like, you're making all these changes that are kind of expanding your business. Your sales are up. You said you took on like new space um, in order to keep up with all this demand how do you plan for the future and what's next without being able to know if this will last? Like what's gonna happen in six months? Maybe this pandemic will be over. People will go back to eating um, how they did before or maybe in a totally different way. Like how are you thinking about meeting needs now and also being ready for for the future?
3: I think it's a confluence of a, a number of things. So first and foremost, no one knows the future. I mean, that's true in normal times. Yeah. And right now we are living in the most unusual times. So my philosophy going into this or, or during this time has been trying to do what is necessary to support the farmers we work with and our community, and then keep my, my team safe. Those have been my priorities. I have, I have, other than taking on the new space, I've tried not to make any really large permanent purchases. Like We bought two new vehicles, but I haven't bought another warehouse or, or done something drastic because of exactly the conversation you and I are having, which is that the future is so uncertain and we don't know what's going to happen. That being said, I believe that you will see a permanent to semi-permanent shift in the way that people acquire their groceries in this country after this, after this is over. And also, my hope is a renewed level of the, a desire to put something good and clean and wholesome in their bodies. And there's so much suffering going on right now. And it's such a hard time for so many people that I feel that that conversation is probably not ready to be had. But when it is, looking at our food system as a whole, Looking at the food that we choose to raise, grow, the system we choose to support in this country is a conversation that has to be had because we're in the middle of a health crisis and our health has never been more important than ever. And what you will hear a lot of the risk factors that are involved with COVID, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, that's a lot of our country. And that, yeah. in some way, has to do with our food system. So, I think that it's it, when when the time is ready for that conversation, I'd be happy to hop on with you again. Um, but I, I think <laughs> that that's a conversation that has to be had, Lisa.
2: That, that's actually a really interesting point. I haven't um, I haven't heard anyone else talking about that um, in the context of of the food system and food choices and and people right thinking more about. Um, I guess I've been thinking a lot about resilient food systems, but part of that is resilient human bodies, right? That can be living in this world where you have to, you know, protect yourself against um illness, which part of it is just eating well, right? So you can be strong as strong as possible. It's not going to prevent you from getting it, but certainly you can be healthier um to fight it. So um I think that's a really cool Point. And there's, there are not often connections made between like the food system, you know, health, farms. It's like all these different things are part of the same system, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, our healthcare system and our food system are, are, are clearly related in some way. And this, look, this, this is not a new conversation. The food system needing to change conversation is not a new conversation. However, I think that in light of what is going on, and again, it's not the time to really have that conversation on a, on a broader level, but it will be at some point. And we are, our food system was was woefully unprepared for this type of a pandemic. Not that any would be fully prepared, but the way in which we operate, the scale at which we're producing food, the processing plants, the fat, all these things are so ill-equipped to handle this type of a crisis. And- you know the, the 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 supply shortages you're seeing at large. It's so funny. My dad, my dad's 77 years old, and he's gotten no takeout in the last ten weeks. He's a Jewish man. He loves Chinese food, and he got pork fried rice last night from a restaurant, and there was no pork. Uh-huh. And huh. we were talking about it today on the way to work. We talk at five thirty in the morning when I'm driving to work, and oh we were gosh. talking about it, and. It was it was really such this uh, on such a micro level, such an illustration of what's going on with the food system. And you're not you're not really seeing that with small local farms. You're not seeing those types of issues. And that's because they're decentralized and, you know, they're serving their community. They're not serving the eastern seaboard. So that is, again, as this wears on, hopefully not for too long, but no one knows. that's something that I think that should be discussed by a lot of people um, that are more important than me. <laughs>
2: um, no, I, I agree with you hundred percent, and um, you know I think I plan on um, digging into a lot of those questions about um, centralized uh, food systems and food production um, in in the coming weeks and months um, as we continue to kind of navigate this this world. Um, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me, Lisa. It was a pleasure.
2: Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it and share it. I'll see you next week. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.